This is Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez was fortunate to spend a few hours with Julie Hirsch, the author of Struck by Living from Depression to Hope, interviewing Julie in her Dallas home earlier last month. And he now brings us a feature on her incredible life story. I tried to kill myself three times. The third time had to work. My SUV idled with promise. I closed my eyes and tried to relax. Guitar strums filled my finely upholstered inner sanctuary. My break-of-day mission kept the music at a distance. I couldn't feel the notes. The sound no longer rumbled in my chest. My fingers brushed against the smooth bucket seats while my nose twitched, filled with the scent of untainted leather. The Escalade ran in park. The garage door closed. My map showed a permanent destination. I leaned forward and my seatbelt pulled. Idiot! I unbuckled the belt. No policeman patrolled my garage. No need for a safety harness. I wanted to end my life. I wanted death with no blood, fast and certain. Julie Hirsch's first attempt, five months earlier, would have involved blood, and it wasn't certain. I took a knife and went in my backyard. You were not needed. Julie wrote of the voice that taunted her head for months. They're better off without you, it continued. And I was thinking about slitting my wrists. Her suicide note was written, Julie recalled in her book. I took a deep breath and held out my wrist. Then the argument broke out in my head. Do you know what you're doing? Well, no, I shook my head. How long does it take to bleed to death? Do you know that? Won't someone find you first? I don't... Don't you have to be in water to keep the blood flowing? Won't your blood clot? You'll just have the scars. Everyone will know you tried and screwed up. The blade rested on my skin, but I couldn't apply force, couldn't silence the arguments long enough to cut. I stared at the knife. Ken found me. Ken is her husband. When he found me, I was basically sitting there thinking about it. And so he stopped me at that point. His eyes moved from fear to anger to pain to shame. In less time than it took me to drop the knife, Julie wrote, my actions hurt him. In an instant, our relationship had irrevocably changed. I think for someone who's actually thinking about suicide, if you could imagine that thought constantly running through your head almost to the point where it's every waking moment, that's what it feels like to be depressed enough that you would consider suicide. After her first child was born, her son, Julie had postpartum depression, but she didn't know that's what it was. Nine months after his birth, on Easter Sunday, she wrote into her journal, thoughts about suicide for the first time this week. 
That's so crazy. My life is full. I have a husband who loves me, a beautiful child, and yet somehow my life feels uncertain. Growing up with a modest upbringing, Julie now lived in a lavish existence that her husband's success brought, and she felt out of place in it. They had recently built a 10,000 square foot dream house, his dream house, that she was uncomfortable with, that she was uncomfortable in, uncomfortable in your own home. Julie wasn't working, and she didn't even have to work to take care of the house. There were people for that. She wrote at the time, I prayed for an inspired life. While I meditated with palms open, Forbes magazine featured Ken in an article. We were on different tracks. Ken's route created more wealth, more recognition, more possessions. He reveled in his business success. I was happy for Ken, but felt overshadowed. I wanted to be more than Ken Hirsch's wife or the mother of Ken Hirsch's children. Julie had lost her identity. She had lost her sense of purpose, and she tried to commit suicide a second time when they spent the summer in Santa Fe. I had gone up to this place in New Mexico that I had hiked a lot. It's a place called Raven's Ridge. So I went up to that point, and the cliff was a lot less straight down than I remembered it. I was thinking, great. It's not going to kill me. I'm going to end up being a paraplegic and depressed. And so I was thinking clearly enough to think, okay, that's going to be worse than how I am today. And so I went back down the mountain from that point. And actually, I mean, there's a weird scene that I describe in the book where I go down and then I go out to dinner with my husband and some friends for sushi and act like nothing happened. And she delayed this attempt for a reason that you might not expect. My sister, she's a great artist, occupational therapist, very caring person. And she has also suffered from depression as well. And she was going to come to New Mexico to visit us in 2001. And I wasn't going to kill myself while she was there because I know she loves art and I wanted her to love Santa Fe as much as I did. And so that's why I didn't do it, you know, because I didn't want to ruin Santa Fe for my sister, not because I thought her life might be devastated because I was gone. She just, you know, I mean, it's totally illogical. It doesn't make sense. Three months later, home in Dallas, Julie tried to think of a new way the certain bloodless way to end her life. And wrote of the moment, I stepped into my house in search of the method. Each room presented options, but none felt right. A fall? Maybe I can make it look like an accident. Right. Maybe on the first try, but not the third. Unable to end my life, I ran an errand. We needed milk. When we come back, more on Julie Hirsch's story, author of Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. This 
This is Our American Stories, and nothing's out of bounds here. And depression touches so many families and so many of our lives. And that's why we're sharing this story with you. If it can help a life, help a family, God bless. Alex continues with Julie Hirsch here and her story of trying to commit suicide, not once, not twice, but three times. When we left off, Julie was struggling to figure out the method for trying the third time, so she ran an errand. Why does my heart go on beating? On the ride home, Julie recalled in her book, I turned off the radio. Focus! Thoughts strained, as if in need of oxygen, I pulled my car into the garage, discouraged. Then the idea hatched right as the garage door shut. Death by carbon monoxide. I felt like um, I, I felt like the housekeeper would find me, not my family, and that would be better. And not that I disliked the woman who was helping us with our house, but I thought she could handle it better than my family could handle it. Um, and so that's what it was. I mean, it's 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 very illogical. I think one of the things that I try to explain to people that if you try to untangle the why and you've never been in that state, you're going to be very, very frustrated. It's almost um, like talking to a blind man and saying, why can't you see this? Why can't you see this? Well, you're blind. I mean, you're somebody who's deeply, deeply depressed. Their brain gets on a different track that they, like I did, even though I, you know, clearly my children would have been worse off, even if I was a terrible mother, they would have been worse off if I killed myself in my own home than if I had lived. But what happens is somebody who's in the deepest, darkest part of depression, they don't think like that anymore. They just think of, as I did, oh, Ken, Ken will remarry. The kids will have a better mother than me because I'm a horrible mother. I'm just, you know, I don't deserve to live. I'm sure I'm inflicting all kinds of psychological damage on them already by being who I am. And everybody would be so much better off if I weren't here. After she chose this third method, Julie says she can barely remember her almost last day on this earth. What did I say to my children? My husband. Did I make love to my husband? I don't know. The next morning, as her husband was gone and her kids were asleep, Julie tried, painfully, to end her life. She was in the garage for over an hour. Then, her housekeeper Margaret's car rolled up. Fuck! Julie shouted to herself. And she told Margaret what she had tried to do, even though she didn't have to. Margaret hadn't noticed. So after Margaret came home, after the, the car incident, um, you told her and you wrote you weren't sure why. Can you talk about that more? Did you think that innately inside of you, you wanted to live and, and that's why you told her? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I think, you know, I know I, I, I'm not sure if I innately wanted to 
liver. I just was so disgusted with the whole thing. I mean, it's... Um, I'd like to think that I I innately wanted to live, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. That's a great. I would love to go back. I, no, I wouldn't love to go back in time, but I that would you know. There's certain things of it that I'd love to go interview myself in the moment and say, what were you thinking? After this third suicide attempt, Julie's doctor recommended electroconvulsive therapy, better known as ECT. Open your mouth. This will keep you from biting your tongue. Now bite down on it. Her perception of which, her misperception of which, singularly came from the Jack Nicholson movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You ready? Nicholson writhed, Julie recalled. A rag stuffed in his mouth, he shook uncontrollably. The image had stayed with me for more than 20 years. On the ride home, Ken wanted my answer. I looked out the window. Well, Ken turned towards me, eyes off the road. The road! What? Can you keep your eyes? Jesus, you're trying to kill yourself, but you're worrying about my driving? Don't you see anything wrong with this? The kids need you. He softened, stared ahead. They need both of us. I need you. You think I'll get better? I glanced at Ken, then stared out of the windshield. But this is who I am. This is who I've always been. Ken drove with one hand on the wheel, green eyes fixed on white lines as they flashed past. Julie, this isn't you. It's your depression talking. I hated that expression. It sounded like some pop psych soundbite, almost as bad as suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. There's someone else for you. The person they wanted was an act I couldn't sustain. You're young, rich, plenty of women will want to marry you. Ken pounded the steering wheel and swerved. The man in the battered white Chevy Impala next to us snarled and flipped me off. I pretended he didn't exist. You have two choices. Do ECT or I go. I can't take it anymore. I hated him for this. Backed into a corner, I had to say yes. My depression-controlled brain reasoned. My children could weather my suicide, but not a divorce. Okay, I'll do ECT. Ken nodded. He knew not to talk past the sale. The next few weeks were painful. Airplanes crashed into the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, in a field in western Pennsylvania. Days before, I entered the locked psychiatric ward. While the rest of the world gaped in horror, I nodded. It was it was very surreal to um, see. You know, I wanted to die so badly, and to see people um, leaping from buildings, and I was just thinking, "Gosh, I wish I could be." You know, all these good people being killed. And I'm 
basically not contributing, why why couldn't we just trade places? And why why am why am I here versus not there? Um, and it's again uh, that's an illogical thing to think. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody else in the world was thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not there. And I was thinking, I wish I could have trade places so that somebody else could be here and I could be there because my life has no meaning anymore. ECT is a last resort treatment for depression where electric currents are passed through the brain and its effect is essentially like hitting a reset switch in the brain. And Julie told me that it works for 80% of patients and usually requires 6 to 10 sessions for a sustained lift of depression. But Julie was different. Everything changed for her after the first time. First session I had, I woke up and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how could I, I possibly thought killing myself was a great idea? Um, you know, I've done terrible things in my life, but I don't desire, deserve to die from them. Um, and yet 24 hours earlier, I was convinced that I should die for them. So to me, that's, there's something strange happening in my brain that changed that course immediately. Then I could do the psychotherapy and all the other things to stay well. In case you're unfamiliar with the term, psychotherapy is treatment by psychological means rather than medical ones, where you develop habits to respond to situations in healthy ways. I had to get off, you know, I always use the analogy of the cardiac arrest. I had to get out of cardiac arrest before you could say, oh, you should really eat better and you should sleep. I was in cardiac arrest, but with depression as opposed to my heart. And when we come back, we continue Julie Hirsch's story and what courage she has to share it the way she is here and... Again, Julie Hirsch's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Julie Hirsch's remarkable story, and all from her book, by the way, Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. Get it on Amazon.com. Again, Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. We continue with Julie's story. My velocity of recovery made everyone nervous. Even as I sparred with Ken about the validity of the new me, I had my own doubts. With ECT, I felt better almost instantly. Why? How could I want to kill myself one day and then the next day understand the futility of suicide? I have the same life, the same body, even the same mind. 
What caused my depression? Hormones, some brain chemical malfunction, genetic disposition. I couldn't ask these questions and not face the hardest one. Will it happen again? And although the questions were dawning, I was determined to guard my life against recurrence. Part of that came through the help of Dr. Yvonne Wolf. She was just incredibly wise. She's a psychotherapist. And one that wanted to understand her family of origin. And with that information, helped Julie understand why she reacts the way she does to the world around her. I spoke with Julie about one of the past episodes she explored with Dr. Yvonne when she was just a young girl and was at Bethesda Navy Hospital with pneumonia. A doctor um, used the fact that I was a virgin as part of his, grand not grand rounds, but it felt like grand rounds. He brought a bunch of interns in, and first he wouldn't believe that I was a virgin. Um, and I think I was 15 or 16 years old at the time. And, you know, I had mature a little bit early, but, you know, I, I, I look like a woman, but, and, and this is actually kind of an interesting part of the book because now I think it's probably hard to understand because I was pretty naive that I didn't question this doctor's authority to do what he did. Um, but I basically was alone in the hospital. My parents, you know, there were five children. My dad was working. My mom had to go home and take care of the other kids. And so I was left um, by myself in the hospital. And so this doctor found out I was a virgin and he basically um, performed uh, a pap smear on me, the first pap smear I'd ever had in front of a bunch of interns. And he sort of, you know, put my legs in the stirrups. I was exposed to... um, You know, I I guess it was a group of, I mean, it was so long ago, you know, maybe 10, maybe eight people. And so he just sort of waved his hand and said, this is a virgin. You won't see very many like these. Julie added in her book, I didn't cry. Something shut down, detached. As the interns whispered and my doctor paraded my body like a freak at the circus sideshow. I've had so many women say, oh my gosh, that's just horrific. I can't. And I've had a couple of men saying, so what's the big deal? I don't get it. Especially like, given what he whispered to you, too. Yes, yes. Now you know what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it was just really, you know, I, I think he, you know, you talk about sexual abuse, and I really... I think things like that go on that I I was just so in shock about it because you don't expect that from somebody in authority. Um, I, I, after, you know, and I didn't talk to anybody about it um, until college, like late in college. Um, And one of my really good friends, Chris Cervanek, who I'm still really good friends with, um, a woman um, who was pre-law, I, I can't even remember why we started talking about the story, but we did. And she looked at me and she goes, that's rape. And I said, no, it's not rape. It was, you know, it was a metal object. It wasn't, you know, he didn't 
And she said, no, that's, that's called rape. And I, I never really even thought of it like that. I still, in a way, have a hard time calling it rape because for me, that's, I don't know, um, would involve body connection. Um, but I remember telling my, my dad and he was so angry. You know, I was like, could you imagine your, you know, you, do you have girls? Who, yeah, two, my, my two Oh my gosh, you imagine yeah. if your daughter, I mean, if, if Ken, that happened to Ken, I think he might get a gun and go hunt the guy down. I mean, he, my dad was so angry, and he tried to find out who the doctor was. But by then, it was, yeah. you know, six years later, and they, Bethesda wouldn't have, it was a military hospital, and they're not going to cooperate with yeah. a situation like that. Um, so talk about how that, that's it, just one example that you talk about in the book of yeah. bearing the pain. Yeah, and I just, you know, what's really interesting is until I went through psychotherapy, I just, you know, that was one afternoon of my life, and I had no idea how much of an impact that had on me. Um, and, and a lot of it is because of the age I was and how defenseless I felt, and... Um, but what what uh, Dr. Yvonne did was she, um, I mean, we just talked and talked and talked and talked about this till the and I cried and cried about it. That I felt really stupid that I was crying over one afternoon of my life. But it was a significant afternoon in her life, and it was representative of how she handled trying events. Instead of reconciling with her pain, she buried it. She attempted to bury it deep in her being, but it was still there. And all of that pain from all the trials in her life came back to bite her. She now knows not to do that anymore. And Julie wasn't alone in hiding her feelings and hiding her depression. She writes, Depression is everywhere. Most people are waiting for someone else to break the ice. Our fear of rejection looms larger than the rejection itself. And what an insight. Our fear of rejection looms larger than the actual rejection itself. Everybody talks so much about this issue of stigma, and what I have found is I can count on one hand the number of negative reactions, really mean reactions I've gotten to being open about this, and there's been literally thousands of people who have either shared their story or, um, I mean, really too many to count. I can't, and it's kind of embarrassing sometimes because so many people feel like, oh, you're the only one who understands my story. And then they'll, they'll see me two years later and they'll say, oh, remember I told you my deepest, darkest secret. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I remember it because the reality is one in four you know, there's probably one in four people who are out there suffering with depression. Uh, the number of suicides uh, in the last CDC report has exceeded the number of mortality rates um, from breast cancer in our country. Mm. Um, so it is, the, so more people are dying by suicide in our country than breast cancer. Over 40,000 deaths from breast cancer a year and almost 43,000 from suicide. 
And so we, I really believe we need to stop hiding this because literally the person next to you has had some exposure to this. And if we start treating this as a thing that a lot of people have and we need to get to the answer, we're going to find the answer. Rise like the day I'll rise up in spite of the age. I will rise a thousand times. This is Our American Stories, Julie Hirsch's story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Alex's feature on the extraordinary Julie Hirsch. Writing her book, Struck by Living, was therapeutic for Julie, and others tell her it's been therapeutic for them, too. This happens all the time, and one of the my favorites that gets repeated is, I've read this book, and it's just like me. And the weird thing is I've had, you know, teenagers that were totally gothed out with pierced noses and earrings say that. I've had (laughs) professional businessmen tell me that. I've had, just yesterday, a woman who's 30 years old and really struggling. Um, The other favorite class of things that happens is two things. One, when people tell me, I finally understand my sister or my brother or something like that. And then the other thing people will say, your book saved my life. And usually um, those were people who were considering ECT and were afraid to do it. And they did it and it it helped them. And How many so, people would you say that's happened with? Oh gosh. I don't know. We have a little connect support group in Dallas, and I don't know. I always push back so hard on that. But there's, I mean, even in our little connect group, I know five or six people have said that. And then, you know, I've had people from all over the country tell me that. And I try not to keep count because it's not about a keeping count kind of thing. That's the power of storytelling. It's imitative power. Someone reading or listening to her story can see that they can save their life, too. In addition to Julie's remarkable book, she and her husband, Ken, are using their own wealth to fund research that they hope will lead to a better detection of depression and also better personalized treatment. So if you look back in 2001, which for me was by far the most serious episode of depression I've had, Um, So I went into my primary care physician in January of that year, and I said, something's wrong with me. I can't sleep. I've, you know, I've lost, I'm losing weight, and I can't control it. You know, I'm apathetic about everything, where I'm usually very, you know, I'm a pretty fun person. (laughs) I like doing stuff. 
And, you know, Ken Newsom, so my physician took a blood test, did a couple things, and said, there's nothing wrong with you, go on home. So what if a primary care physician had tools to say, ooh, okay, now I, I think, I hope, most primary care physicians, if they see somebody who's like that, they'll know to say, okay, you're having issues with depression. Here's, here's what you need to think about getting better. Let's look at sleep. Let's look at exer- exercise. Let's get you set up with a good psychotherapist. And then maybe we'll need to think about medication depending on how, how things work out. My, it was my sister-in-law who basically said, you're depressed, you need to get on medication right away. Now, unfortunately, that was probably almost three months later, and I started with a psychotherapist too, and it was just, you know, at that point, I, was, I kind of had waited to the point where I was sort of at stage three cancer, and let's start the roulette wheel of trying medication and figuring out if you can, part of the research we're funding now is to adequately detect and then adequately direct people to the right class of treatment. It's just that the challenge we have today is we don't have good enough tools to say, ooh, based on your biotype, you would do better on this class of medications versus this one. They. I don't know if you know this, but basically the handbook is, oh, you have depression? Let's, if you're a doctor, you'd say, oh, let's put them on a serotonin-based antidepressant. That doesn't work, let's double it. Then let's triple it. Then let's put them on another force. And you may not have a serotonin problem, but the problem is the doctors, they're not being mean, they just don't know. And I'm learning that actually most of medicine is like this, that the doctors are doing the best they can, but people really need to be an active participant in their wellness because there's no clear tool yet. We're working on them, and I think they will get there eventually to tell you what thing to do. And there is no, it really needs to be personalized medicine by biotype, but we don't have the technology that we're there yet. But I, I'm really convinced in the next you know, I would hope five years, 10 years, we're going to get a lot further along than we are today. We're at the end of the story, and Julie wrote that she wanted the end of her story to be, quote, on the mountaintop, my depression conquered. I bound my words with a black spiral cord and sent my story to 50 of my friends. In that first version of this book, I had depression licked. With the help of therapy and medication, I'd gone without a serious dip back into depression for four years. Had gone. Julie then read to me the revised part of her story. When I picked up Andrew from school that day, he knew something was wrong. Then 12 years old, he knew what had happened to me during the previous depression. I had told him. Despite his age, I thought he should understand mental illness. Depression ran and runs deep in my family. Although I didn't want to scare him, it seemed irresponsible not to let him know the chance of genetic transference. We pulled into the main garage and got out of the car. Mom, he asked, is your depression back? I looked into those deep blue eyes of his, yellow flecks around the Irish. Yes, I'm sorry, my depression is back. 
That's okay, Mom. He held his palms up as if he had the answer. Just go to the doctor, do that shock thing, and take your medicine. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? Why couldn't I see my depression like that as a disease to be addressed? You're right, ECT. That's all I have to do. Yet somehow I didn't believe ECT would work again. He touched my arm. You'll be okay, Mom. I smiled. My son turned away from me, not sure what else he should say. I reached out and squeezed his shoulder. Hey, Andrew, how'd that book end? A Wrinkle in Time. Andrew shook his head in disgust. Oh, that book was so stupid. The author couldn't figure out how to end it, so she just made up some dumb ending. Really? I strained to remember. I'd read the book over 25 years ago. How'd the book end? The dad was saved by love. How brain dead is that? Saved by love? Yeah, love. Can you believe it? I, I brushed back his thick brown hair. My son looks like me. Dark hair and brows, light eyes, square jaw. Andrew, I wonder if a 12-year-old boy could possibly understand what I wanted to say. Sometimes the only reason I get through the day is because I love you, and I know you love me. He squinted, a 12-year-old smirk. Huh? He raised one eyebrow, perplexed, as though he wanted me to say something more, but he didn't. Instead, he turned away from me and shook his head and walked into the house. As usual, he left the door open. I did great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I haven't. No, no, no. That's just. Um, yeah, they're both. My children are really amazing, and I had a, a similar situation with my daughter this summer because I uh, I relapsed over the summer, and I you know, said something to her where I basically said, you know, if anything happens to me, it's not out of lack of love for you. Yeah. And we were running, and she basically looked at me, and she goes, Mom, we're going to get back to Dallas. You're going to go to the doctor, and you can't talk to me like that. You're going to get wow. better. And I just thought, wow, what composure for somebody who is 20 years old to say that to her mother. And she, um, she and Daniel, Ken had to go on a business trip. She and Daniel were actually the ones who got me to the psychiatric ward, had me checked in, and she was just steely about it. And I think part of the reason she could be is from the time they were five and seven years old, we've talked about depression as a disease and something that can be managed. From that young, wow. Yeah, and they, they believe it, and they've seen it. And so they look at me like someone having a heart attack, and they're like, no, you're going to the doctor. This is this is how you take care of it, and it's it's just really powerful to see because I think if more families could understand that, we could all help each other stay alive. And great job, Alex, on that, and beautiful storytelling by Julie Hirsch. What a beautiful and remarkable story, and it touched my family deeply. This same story, a beautiful niece, Tamara. We didn't know just how serious her depression was because she didn't tell anybody, one friend and one friend alone. And one day she succeeded. 
She killed herself with a handgun. So if you're listening and this has helped, if it's changed one life, helped one family, thank you, Julie, for sharing. And it's a it's something that touches every family in this country. And the shame of it, the shame of it, is why, well, not enough of us talk about it. But here on this show, we will be talking about it. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. If depression has touched your family and or suicide, share it with us. We'll share it. We'll share your story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and the other day I was flying and I bumped across an airline magazine article about intentionally planning to eat with people you don't know. That's right, I just said it. It talked about a company called Eat With, where you can sign up to attend a stranger's dinner party that they host in their home, and every guest is a complete stranger. But not so once the dinner is over, and that's the beauty of this. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the first employees of Eat With, Noam Klinger. When she joined the company in 2014, it was a startup in Tel Aviv, Israel, with only six or seven employees. And she was the community manager for one of their two markets. Now they're in, get this, 200 cities across the globe and coming to a market near you. And she's now the global chief operating officer. And Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Eat With, let's talk about you. Tell us about your childhood in Israel. We always like to talk to people involved in business life. Your childhood in Israel and what it was like and how did it shape you? So I grew up in Israel in a small neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv, a place where everyone knew everyone. And I grew up with people who are still my best friends till this very day. I even married my neighbor who was my best friend as a child. So a wonderful childhood. Um, as a family, we traveled extensively, and my parents always pushed me to see the world, to immerse myself in other cultures, and to follow my passions and dreams. There's, um, you know, this talk about the Jewish mother who will keep her children close to her. So my mother was the opposite. She kept saying, go travel, meet people, try new things, and that's what I did. So when I graduated... When I got out of the Army, I traveled in South America for a year. I lived in New York. I lived in Barcelona and London. I traveled in India for a very long time. And I think this played a a great role in shaping the person I am today. Moreover, food has always been a great, great passion of mine and a big part of my family culture. We used to cook together. We used to host a lot of people. Every Friday dinner, we would host 20 to 30 people, an open table, and me and my father will create a new menu each week and produce it and host, and the door will be open, and people would join the table, and we keep this tradition till this very day. Now I'm trying to do it myself in San Francisco. <laughs> and it, I, would, I would guess that in some ways, Noam, 
the, uh, the, the, the benefits you got from this and the joy you took in it uh, was instrumental in you starting and working with, or just at least working with this essential startup. Uh, it was that 20 or 30 so folks every Friday in that, in that family of yours, and not many other families were doing this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. I was very fortunate to meet Eat West because I felt, in a way, this is a combination of everything I love. And it was an opportunity to bring this passion of mine and my family tradition and culture to my day-to-day work. So I kind of felt like I was raised to this, to this idea of meeting people around the dinner table. And Noam, you, you served in the IDF uh, as an intelligence officer. And folks, for those of you who don't know, in Israel, you're joining the army. Male, female, you're going in in some capacity and you're serving. And you said this in our pre-interview, the Army is a big part of who I am now, my professional skills on how to deal with people and manage big projects. I was only 18 when I went in, and it's an organization of young people, so you have lots of responsibility in your hands. So two things I think are central. Your mom, rather than keep you close, pushed you away and out, but not pushed you away from her. She just wanted you to learn. And by goodness, she probably got you to be closer to her by doing that. So every parent listening... And take note, there are different ways to do these things. But then this military experience, you told us this had a central part of your, uh, sort of your, your, your character being formed early. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. So I think the Army, um, you think of a military service as going into the field, but for me, serving in the intelligence force was a training for the startup culture. I was working in a very innovative uh, unit with... Uh, 200 soldiers by my side. Later, I was the commander of 200 people. So in the age of 20, I had 200 people who reported to me. This is a huge experience for a 20 years old. Well, you, can't like, like an, you cannot act like an idiot when 200 people are reporting to you. Exactly. And you get a lot of responsibility. You, tr- you train yourself in, in skills that are later very, very relevant to, to acting in the real world. And let's talk about the culture in Tel Aviv, because per capita, next to Silicon Valley, there are more startups there than just about anywhere else in the world. And I don't know that most Americans think of Israel and uh, this city called Tel Aviv as startup nation, but it is. Talk about what's going on there in the water, what's going in there in the culture. Why is Tel Aviv Tel Aviv? So first, I just want to say that after living abroad, I still feel Tel Aviv is one of the best cities to live in. It's a combination of diverse and creative people, old and new. It has the beach. It has an amazing food scene, as well as art and music. And that's along with the startup scene, was really, really strong, and with a mature ecosystem of accelerators, investors, uh, VCs, angels, mentors. Um, you can hardly go to lunch without bumping into a fellow founder, developer, or investor. Everyone knows everyone, and there are lots of collaborations and general sense of a community driving everyone forward. Personality-wise, I think the Army, again, and the military service has a lot to do with that. So it's, look at it. I, I kind of like to look at it as a um, startup factory. So a lot of 21 years old graduating from the Army and are already trained in the most innovative units of the Army, ready to join a startup um, 
with a lot of um, actual experience, as well as a sense, um, a basic sense that life isn't granted and you never know what's going to happen until even a year from now, which makes people, t- um, people tend to take more risks, to be very passionate, to be very aggressive, and not to be afraid of failures. They are willing to, to play it all. And I think this is what creates this sense of excitement and innovation and creation. And Noam, hold that thought. We'll be back to learn more about your dinner party startup, Eat With, after this short break. American Stories, and we're talking with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup that's the Uber or Airbnb of dinner parties. We were just talking about how the culture of Tel Aviv and Israel is so amazingly supportive of startups and risk-taking, the incredible talent pool, the vibrant energy, and the sober realization that Israelis can never quite take tomorrow for granted. So Noam, please tell us more about your particular startup, Eat With. How does it work? Okay, so EatWith is a marketplace that brings people together through food and homes around the world. This is the vision, to bring people together. We have about a 1,000 hosts, home cooks, and professional chefs in 200 cities globally who host tourists and locals for dinner parties, cooking workshops, and special culinary experiences. You can do it as a tourist when you travel abroad, or you can do it as a local in your own city. It doesn't matter. You can join a table, like you said, with people you don't know and experience something unique together, or you can book the whole table and get a special, private, culinary experience in the house of the chef. Um, I like to look at it. Think about you going to Barcelona, for example. Um, You can dine with all the tourists in the Rambla and eat paella straight from the microwave, or you can go and meet Alberto and Ella, our host, in their cool apartment, cook with them a paella from scratch and meet their friends, talk about the Catalan culture. I think people nowadays are looking for more intimate, authentic experiences, um, and this is exactly what Eatless provides. Um, I think it's, a, it's a remarkable thing, that authenticity you're talking about, because I think you're dead right. I think more than ever, when it, when it, whether it comes to content or whether it comes to, and I believe you're in the content business. A meal is theater. A meal is uh, is content. The food is content. The conversation is content. And it's an experience like going to the theater or anything else and maybe better um, because these are real-life relationships. You go to the theater, you leave. The only relationship you have is with the person you went to the theater with. You've learned a little more. You've been moved. But that's it. 
Um, you don't get to know the people in the audience when you're going to a play. I think that's what's distinctive here. Talk about how you find the people who host, because I would assume that you have to do a lot of quality control on that space. This isn't like Uber. Um, you've got to make sure that your brand is kept, kept solid and strong and protected by vetting properly the people who are going to be hosting these parties. A couple of bad experiences and your brand name suffers. How do you do that? So you're right. We take the vetting process very, very seriously. Um, we have, so some of our hosts, we actually found them ourselves. Um, the other way to go is to apply online and to go through our application process. Then we handpicked the best host in every city, the ones who will not only feed you with amazing food, but will also give you the full experience. So we're looking for this unique combination that is not only you know how to cook an amazing meal, which is fresh and unique, um, but also the personality of the host. And this is the most important thing for us. So who's the person who will open the door? He has to be a people person, someone who loves hosting, who knows how to control the dinner and to make conversation flowing and to make you feel at home, as well as the space. So it has to be clean. It has to have a good vibe in it. Um, So it's a very unique combination. We go through a very um, distinctive application process. And in the very end, we do a demo dinner where the chef actually opens his house for for guests, and our and our guests, um, the the people who are attended multiple eat with dinners will go to those dem- demo dinners along with our staff to vet the actual place and the host. So every host on the platform is vetted. Uh, we take only four percent, four to five percent uh, of our applications, and they they will make it to the platform in the end of the day. Now, uh, you know, what's interesting is I thought food trucks were a fascinating thing that happened, but that's not an experience. It's just an interesting way for people who can't afford to open a storefront to make a living and then maybe open a storefront or maybe not just have a bunch of food trucks. I think this is fascinating because it gives the person who owns an apartment, just like an Airbnb, an opportunity for revenue. Plus, it gives the person who might want to do something other than eat in a restaurant Get the opportunity to have a real-life experience with someone from Barcelona, even someone here in Little Oxford, Mississippi, a city, by the way, that lots of tourists from around the world come to because it's the home of William Faulkner. It's the home of the blues. Elvis's Gracie Mansion is not far away. And people from all over the world come to this little pocket of the country. And my goodness, you can go to one of our restaurants or you could come to my house. My wife could have, well, she loves to have a big open area. We have movie nights on Sunday nights. And we invite random people together on Sunday nights. We've been doing this now for seven months. It's now the joy of our life. We're going to do it forever. Long dinner and then a, a, a movie. And that's every Sunday. Now it's getting, we're, we're sort of catching wind in Oxford. Now we're not doing it for money. I think my point is that this might be an interesting way for someone who can cook to not only host and, and do some interesting things for folks, but people are paying for this experience, correct? Amazing. You just got in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> and so, so talk about how, how, how this can be a, a neat experience. I mean, obviously, you've got to audition. You've got to have the talent. You've got to be able to cook. And you've got to be able to host, which is equally important, I would think, in this matter. Great meal, but you don't know how to keep the conversation going. 
Still not a great experience. So this is a this takes a real talent. But my goodness, what if you could do this two or three nights a week and you're a stay-at-home mom and you wanted to really make some extra money and also really have a tremendous experience but not risk a lot of capital? Um, this becomes a really interesting earning opportunity uh, for someone who can start to get good ratings from the people who are going and enjoying this, this uh, offering. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. We have, uh, I would say, 25% of our hosts are using EatWest as their main source of income. The other 75% will do it as a hobby or as a supplement income uh, on the side. But for people who are doing it full-time, this is a huge opportunity. Think of like opening a restaurant nowadays. This is a huge risk, a huge financial risk as well as your time and efforts. And doing an EatWest doesn't cost anything as a start, and you don't have to risk anything. So for those people, this is an amazing experience to test their recipes, to test their audience, to see how the reactions for their food. And we have hosts who are doing now about $20,000 a month. Wow. So you, you can really make an income out of it. Now, do you think that there is going to be a time in the same way that Uber got challenged by local taxi cabs, the same way that food trucks were starting to get challenged by local restaurants going to the city council? Um, do you think there's going to be a time soon, or has it already happened, where some cities through the restaurant associations are going to go, hey, that $20,000 a month was mine. You're not regulated. You're not being taxed. Um, are you worried that some of the things that have happened to Uber and some of the things that have happened to Airbnb are about to happen to you, or are they happening? So first, I'd, I would just say that we're working with restaurants in a very close relationship. So we had uh, some famous ho- uh, chefs from famous restaurants who decided to do an Eat With event just to have a more personal connection to their audience and to invite people to their own kitchens. So I don't see it as a comp- direct competition, but as a collaboration that can come along. Obviously, the regulation is always a good question. Um, we're opening, an, opening a new category. It's a new, it's a new economy, the sharing economy, and it raises a lot of questions that hadn't been answered so far. But. We will get to them when the time comes, and I'm sure we can find a solution with each um, city council and state as it comes. And I'm sure you're right, because in the end, and this is what I found, you know, the other day I'm sitting in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, a big college town, and the kids are talking about how the town was trying to block Uber, and they had successfully vetoed and worked over the city council and said, hey, come on, and now there's Uber in our, in our little town. And in the end, the citizens are going to make the decision. And the politicians just have to be very careful because people want choices. And that choice is not only of where to eat, but also choices of how to make a living. And this sharing economy is new, and I think in the end it's going to work through all of its growing pains. This is Our American Stories, and after these messages, we'll continue our conversation with Noam Klinger of Eatwith, an Israeli startup looking to change how we eat when traveling, or around even our own hometowns. More after these messages. Everywhere I go, I keep saying the same old thing 
Habib and this is Our American Stories and we've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about how her company brings together total strangers for beautiful gatherings in the homes of thoroughly vetted hosts. Well, they may start as strangers, but I bet they don't stay that way for long. Noam, will you please tell us some of your favorite stories about folks who met at Eat With dinners? Of course. So I have a lot of them. You know, three years of people around tables produces a lot of content. Uh, I was just invited to a wedding that will happen next summer of one of our top hosts in Barcelona who matches future wife in an eat with dinner. So she was a guest and he was a host, um, which is a beautiful story. Uh, this is not the first wedding we had at Eat With. We had two hosts who got married. They met through Eat With Meetup and they got married. And we have a lot of love stories coming our ways from people who met around the table as guests. And we have uh, guests who named their newborn after the name of their host because they had such an amazing experience. So they send us a letter with the photo of their kid and the story. And one of my favorite hosts in uh, Rome, she was a real estate agent in, uh, in our past, and now she's a full-time Eat West host. And she, every time she has guests over, she will either go with them afterwards to a party. She will hang out with them the day after. And she really creates those meaningful experiences. In, in last uh, April, she visited Israel and stayed in guests she hosted before in her house. She stayed now in their home uh, on our travel to Israel. And we had the opposite way when a guest, a host from Israel, who hosted a lot of Americans along the years, decided to do a road trip along the, um, the West Coast, staying at her former guest houses. So they invited her to stay at their place after they dined with her in Israel. That's terrific. And Noam, we've noticed that you're on the board for the Israeli branch of Nifty the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We absolutely love this group, and we had on our show the two best friends who won Nifty's 2013 National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge with their business built around socks that securely hold shin guards for soccer players. You can hear that interview on our website, by the way, at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, um, we talked earlier about the superb culture for entrepreneurship and startups in Tel Aviv, and throughout Israel. So it's natural that Nifty would want to work with Israelis. Please tell us more about Nifty, what the group is doing in Israel, and how you participate 
Share a favorite memory or two. Okay, so you touched one of my favorite projects I'm involved in, and I'm happy you asked about it. Um, so as you said, NIFTY, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, originally it's an American program, but it was brought to Israel, I think, in 2006. I hope I'm not wrong. Um, and their mission is to provide educational programs that inspire young people from low-income or deprived communities to stay in school, to recognize business opportunity, and to plan for a successful future. Basically, take the tools that we have in our day-to-day uh, day-to-day professional world, and to give it to them in the early uh, when they're young. Um, it's not about turning them into entrepreneurs or make or building businesses. It's about giving them the basic tools and networking skills, asking questions, innovation, working in teams, and all those skills, the soft skills that actually help them to be better people in the end of the day and to open up doors for them um, in their future. I'm in love with this project. I've seen amazing cases of people who got to really changed their life through this program. I just, um, I think a week ago, the global competition of the NIFTY teams from all around the world met in New York, and I just got the photos of the Israeli team of four boys who took the flight the first time of their life. They Mm. bought a suit for the first time of their life, and they had to pitch in English for 10 minutes about their new startup idea, and for them, that was a life-changing experience. Oh, indeed. You know, what I find is, and I've worked with uh, some inner-city kids here in, in the United States on this, and they're always thinking, how can I do a startup? I have no money. And I said, look, you do a startup because you might have a great idea, and someone with money might give you not only the money, they might give you the training. There's a thing called social capital, and very often what we're looking for is your idea and you, not your money. We're looking for you. And I think that there's such a level of ignorance about how companies get started, who starts them, and how they get started. And I'm so glad that you're working with Nifty. It's it's such a tremendous organization. If we can educate young people about this, we might just bump into a few more risk takers who were young. Look, I'm Lebanese. You're Israeli. It's in our blood. I mean, in, in, my, in my family, if you don't go out and start a company or do something, you're disinherited. Um, we have to do it. So it, it's just uh, it's a cultural thing. Um, how often do you personally attend Eat With Dinners, Noam? Uh, just you yourself. Do you spend time in the field just dropping in on Eat With Dinners? So you touched the fun part of my job. I try to do it as much as I can. I'm a strong believer in keeping like con- straight connection with the host and the guests. So I try in I try to go as much as I can. There were times when it was three to four times a week. Now I have a two years old back home. So I do it less, but I if I'm not at dinners I would talk with hosts, I would talk with guests daily. I felt this is a big part of making this product and service better and understanding how to move forward. Yep. That's a great idea. You know, Bernie Marcus, one of my heroes, we did an hour on him. He's the founder of Home Depot. He said that half his life he spent just visiting the stores and making sure the connection between the customer and the people 
on the on the front lines were tight and then giving them the resources to solve their problems but he was always concerned with the interface of the customer and the product and the rest of it be damned and make sure that management is responsible for that that position and so i'm sure that's got to be a preoccupation with you those dinners start to go down in quality and you've got yourself a problem don't you Mm -hmm. and let's talk about one last thing before we leave you decided to leave tel aviv uh, and bring your corporate team over to San Francisco. Uh, how, how has that experience been different? And talk about what life's like in the Bay Area uh, since you've moved. So I just moved three weeks ago. And I must say, it's an amazing experience so far. Um, I'm still investigating the city and trying myself to meet as many people as I can and to experience food and culture and there's a lot to experience here, that's for sure. Well, and you're at the perfect company to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just start doing Eat With Dinners, and you'll meet lots of people in the city. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, it, Noam, this is a wonderful story. Eat With is the company, and my goodness, what a great idea to bring people together. We're talking to Noam Klinger, and this is just a part of our regular Entrepreneur Series. And thank you so much for joining us, Noam. This is Our American Stories, and we just love stories like that. Culture of entrepreneurship, leadership, great food, world-class hospitality. What more can you ask for? We've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about her Israeli-born startup that connects folks who don't know each other to have great dinner parties. It's like Uber. It's like Airbnb. But for dinner, conversation, and making friends in new places. And by the way, make you and your family a little bit extra money on the side. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.